Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today and enjoy the episode. everyone. I wanted to hop in here real quick for a, a trigger warning. We do talk about suicide in this episode. So if you are not in the space uh, to listen to that, feel free to skip this episode and maybe come back at a, another time where um, you feel more up to it or not at all. It's completely your choice. So enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Sharon. Sharon wrote her book, The Broken Road to Mental Health and Life and Business to honor her 25th sober anniversary and her mom's birthday on August 11th of 2019, before the whole world went down. (laughs) Uh, Sharon got sober at 21 years old, but not before she experienced a blackout that moved her from New York to Michigan two rehabs, a halfway house, and a 12-step recovery program. She went on to run large medical practices in New York and Tampa Bay, which eventually led to her running her own businesses, The Doctor Whisperer and 13th Avenue Media. Today, she also speaks to organizations about her own previous struggles with addiction, depression, and the journey to overcoming adversary or adversary adversity. She offers companies practical and effective ways to encourage a safe space to navigate through this broken road to mental health in life and business. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Thank you. Uh, So uh, mental health is my jam. Uh, (laughs) I was sharing with you and and anybody who's been listening to the podcast for a while uh, knows that I'm in school for um, psychology, um, specifically my, um, interest is mental health is a mental health stigma and stigma in general. And there's a lot of stigma around addiction as well. And I want to apologize to anybody listening. If I sound weird, uh, my family got the COVIDs. (laughs) We, I mean, we're all vaccinated. Uh, and so it was really mild. Uh, half of us got it and half of us didn't. And I was like, well, we're playing vaccine roulette over here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my so, goodness. Yeah. I didn't really get much for symptoms except like, it seems to be like a little bit of congestion going on. So yeah, anyways, the norm. Well, I'm glad yeah. you're okay. Thank you. I was very, my spouse is, is high risk. So I was thankful he was one of the people that didn't get it. And so I was like, mm-hmm. oh, hallelujah. Yeah. Some good news. <laughs> Some <laughs> good news. Well, Sharon, I'd love for you to kick us off. When did you start to struggle? You know, a lot of, um, a lot of times people struggle with addiction, um, because they have a lot of things going on, um, and they want to numb, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't know if that was your specific experience, but share your experience with us. Well, I, um, I think my experience is like some that don't get spoken about too much. I, I grew up in a very happy my mother just left my house actually um, <laughs> here in Tampa Bay. And uh, I grew up in Long Island, New York and two brothers. My parents are still married uh, 53 years later. Oh, wow. uh, I went to private school. I was very athletic. I had a lot of friends growing up. Uh, I would say that things started to uh, go astray 
when I was suffering with, um, I had very bad acne as a teenager and I definitely, um, did not like the extra pounds that I put on due to, you know, hormones and just being a teenager and, you know, never thinking that you were going to gain weight. And, mm-hmm. um, I was very self-conscious. I was definitely a self-conscious kid and, um, and drinking was just what we did. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I have a 17 year old stepson today who, you know, comes home at curfew and never asked to stay out later. Um, I've never, he's never had an issue. And I was that kid that just loved to drink because when I drank, I didn't, I felt prettier. I felt funnier. Mm-hmm. I, I felt skinnier. And I think that that was kind of the catapult that, uh, just not feeling great about myself because there certainly wasn't an issue in my home life. There was no, you know, uh, there was no abuse. There was no trauma. There was no sexual abuse. You know, I've heard all the stories being a, a sober woman, 27 years later, I've heard it all. Yeah. Um, but my, my story wasn't like that. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of us out there. Um, but it just goes to show that this is a disease and a progressive one at that. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've had all sorts of stories on the podcast of, you know, different things that led into, and I can totally relate to being the, the chubby girl in high school. And like, you know, when you went to parties, it made you feel cooler. And, you know, I was fortunate mine didn't lead down that path, but I mean, yeah, I, I was a nerd. And so when you went to parties and you were drinking, now you were everybody's friend. And mm-hmm. unfortunately that ends when you go back to school and you're not drunk. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and for me, it was, um, you know, it was very innocent in the beginning. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, drinking, uh, growing up in Long Island, New York, we, uh, we would hang out in parking lots and we would just drink beer and and then it was smoking pot and then it progressed. And then by the time I was, uh, I was just talking to my husband last night, we were out to dinner and our son is going to be 18 uh, in February. And we're talking about what we should get him and what we should do. And he asked me what, what I got. And I said, you know, it was hard for me to remember at first. And, and then I remembered that, you know, my parents had given me money and it all went up my nose. Mm-hmm. Every last bit of, it. I was supposed to use it towards a car and instead, um, it was cocaine. I had just been introduced to cocaine. So not a great time to have that much money in an 18 year old's hand and, and be addicted to other substances. So, and then it progressed, you know, I mean, the disease of alcoholism and addiction is very progressive and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that a little bit if you'd like to hear more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and cocaine is expensive. It is. Uh, my uh, ex uh, was an addict. Thankfully, he's we have a, a child together and thankfully he's been sober for 10 years now and he's nice. he's married and, you know, he's doing really well, but I'm um, super expensive. We our money would be gone and, yeah. it, you know, couldn't pay the bills and, you know, you're struggling and we move from house to house to house because he would be he'd get sober and we'd be doing good. And we have this money saved up to like purchase a house and then it's gone. Yeah. And then he would yeah. make excuses as to why it was gone. It was gone. Oh, these people, it's, it's, it's just, these people are being difficult and they want more expecting and there's yeah. all these things. And then it, it just, it, it progresses and it, it can get really bad. Yeah. Well, and it got really bad for me. <laughs> I was, um, 
you know, again, I felt like it was also innocent. Those times in particular were the innocent times. It does maybe to some, it doesn't sound so innocent because, you know, I took uh, a ton of money and put it up my nose, but um, that was really when um, my family started to take notice that there was a, a bigger issue. And um, there was a family intervention done when I was 18 years old. And I came home from a night out with a friend and myself and my friend came into the house and my whole family, including my, my uncle, my godfather was sitting there and they were, you know, telling me that it was time. It was time for me to go and get help. It was time for me to go to my first rehab. And, um, and that was 18 years old, you know? So I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to rehab until you guys throw a party for me. I mean, why would I just stop drinking? Like I had no concept of this being a problem. I just was like, "Mm, yeah, all right, well, let's have a party. And that's what we did. We had a big party on the deck in my backyard, which was crazy thinking about it. Now my parents didn't know any better. And, um, and I left that night in the middle of the night with some guy, which became a lot of my story. You know, it was always some guy, some relationship, some, um, codependency. And, uh, and I came back the next morning and I did go to my first rehab which was a ton of fun. If I dare say so myself, because there were, uh, 18 to 21 year olds, actually it was, no, it was 14 to 21. It was an adolescent rehab in Seafield, um, uh, Seafield Pines. It was called in New Hampshire. So it was beautiful. I mean, I loved it and I was around my type of people. Um, so I thought, and, um, and then, then it really started to, to get worse. You know, it was, um, this, I love mentioning the progression of the disease of, of alcoholism and addiction, because you, you could never imagine the depths of darkness one can go to. And I certainly visited those depths when, um, when I left that rehab, I left after some guy and he didn't ask me to come, but I went and followed him. (laughs) It wasn't like he was like, Sharon, please be with me. Um, and then, you know, I started drinking right away and then that led to more drugs and, um, and blackouts. I was a big blackout drinker. Mm-hmm. I've never been one to be able to handle my alcohol. Um, I think uh, looking back to this day, if I, if I just stuck to beer, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad, but I was always doing shots. It was never enough. It was never enough. I mean, that's really, um, poignant statement. It was never enough. So then I was arrested at 19 and it's not even a good enough story to fill up your podcast with, but um, <laughs> I was arrested and I spent the night in jail and my parents, unfortunately, or fortunately, were going to Family Anonymous, otherwise known as Al-Anon to some, mm-hmm. and, um, and they, they didn't bail me out. So their tough love began and I spent the night in Nassau County Jail, just miffed that they would leave me there. And, um, and from there I was mandated now to my, my second rehab, which was, uh, another like day camp. I feel like, you know, all beautiful places, uh, you know, we meditated and we come by in the morning and we were, you know, lots of trees, lots of climbing, lots of climbing mountains, which was crazy, but you know, that was rehab number two, and then mandated to a halfway house in Poughkeepsie, New York. And then it really got bad. <laughs> So I, I like to, you know, the progression to me is, is not spoken about enough because I don't think people realize that it could start out something innocent as just a few beers and maybe a little dabble with pot and marijuana and cocaine, but it, it certainly took a, a huge toll for me. Um, I left that halfway house after being there for a month. Um, I left against medical advice. 
They said that I would be back. They said that I would never make it. And I said, I'll show you. Um, but it was at that time, cause I had been away from drugs and alcohol for almost two months at that point at 19 years old, that depression really started to sink in. And I was having thoughts of suicide and I was, um, I just could not imagine being around these people. And uh, I wanted to go home and my parents had stopped luckily going to those self-help programs and came and picked me up, not to say it was their fault, but they love their daughter and they picked me up and I, I went home and I don't remember much else from 19 to 21. Um, And just to sum it up for your audience uh, in a blackout one night, I'm assuming that somebody asked me if I wanted to go to Detroit, Michigan. And I said, yes. Now that sounds ridiculous, but that is the truth because I don't remember any of it. Um, I went with some guy named again, I went with some guy named Spokane. So, uh, I didn't know what the hell Spokane was. I thought maybe a combination of spokes and a bicycle and cocaine. I didn't know there was a Spokane, Washington. I didn't know that, you know, he was uh, an awful human being and, and took me to Detroit, Michigan. And I ended up staying there, not staying there with him, but staying there, um, homeless, addicted, abused from 19 to 21. And my parents had no idea where I was. Nobody knew where I was. And I was relieved that I was now in another state where nobody knew I had a problem, you know, and I'm using bunny ears when I say a problem, nobody knew I had been to rehabs. Nobody knew, um, I I needed help. Um, I just found people that drank and drugged like me and became a very, very low bottom addicted, um, crack, you name it, I did it, except heroin, which I'm, I don't care if people have done heroin. It doesn't, a drug is a drug is a drug, a drink is a drink. It doesn't matter. Um, and, uh, and at 21, after being beaten up for the last time by another guy, there was always a horrific, abusive relationship. Um, my parents used to get phone calls from the police that they found uh, your daughter's wallet in another dumpster. And so they just imagined me dead for so long. Yeah. And, um, and it was a, a horrific time, but, you know, by 21 years old, I had gotten on a Greyhound bus and, um, went back to Long Island, New York and, and spent almost a year in my parents in my bedroom that I grew up in, um, going to 12 step recovery meetings and, and really being in a, a deep, dark depression, which is a, in my mind, a very separate issue to mm-hmm. alcoholism and addiction that I'd love to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> And alcoholism, alcohol is a, like, it's a depressant. So that just yeah. makes it worse. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't helping. <laughs> That's for sure. I definitely learned when I was in college the first time right out of high school. Cause I have, I now know I have bipolar disorder. I did not know I had bipolar mm-hmm. disorder. And for anybody who's not familiar, that is uh, the symptoms are depression and mania. Um, my mania is a little more mild. They call it hypomania, but, uh, the depression is more thing. And it took me, um, a while to learn, like, you should not drink like, even like socially, like just a, you know, a couple drinks if you are depressed, because yeah. now it's going to go from like, oh, I'm all right. I can, I can deal with this to like crying my eyes out about like whatever is going on and everybody is just like what is wrong with her (laughs) yeah it doesn't help that's for sure and I thought I could counterbalance that with cocaine but that didn't help either um but you know I I 
there's so many people that come into recovery in whatever way they come in, it does not matter to me. I know people that have gotten sober via Instagram. And so it doesn't matter to me. I just, I love that there's so many options for people to come into recovery and, and to stay. And for me, um, uh, suicidal ideation and attempts were a big part of my story. And I was very, very depressed and I did not see a way out of the hole that was my mind for that first year and, um, and attempted to take my life. And my mother had to take me to the hospital that she was employed at. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, having the just charcoal in my mouth and just the horrific feelings that come along with, with trying to to end your life. And, and I never, ever thought that was going to change. You know, mm-hmm. I never thought I was going to feel better. I never thought I was going to get help. And, and thank goodness that I was going to these 12 step meetings. Um, so I did find relief. I had my people there that were not drinking and not using drugs anymore. I wasn't. And that was the reason that I was suicidal. I mean, I, that was my only coping mechanism since I had been 16 years old. So now I had to sit with the way I felt and the way Mm -hmm. I thought and all of the trauma that I had endured was now sitting in my heart and on my brain. And I did not know how to escape it. So, um, thank goodness, you know, and I wrote about this in my book. Um, there's a whole chapter dedicated to my dad's EAP, counselor, um, at his, my dad worked at New York hospital for 40 plus years. And he told me about this man, Ben Figueres. And he said, I really think that you're, you'll like him. He he's down to earth. And I think that you'll connect with him. And I had been through, as you can imagine, so many (laughs) therapists and counselors and inpatient and outpatient. And I just thought, nope, there was no hope. And I went to meet with Ben every Tuesday and I would take the Long Island railroad and a few subways and buses to get to this man. And And he would give me hope every Tuesday. He would tell me, and I would make him tell me every Tuesday that one day I was going to open the blinds in my room and I was going to feel good again, but I didn't believe him for a long time. And now I'm I'm looking, um, I know if you're listening, you can't hear me, but I'm, I'm looking at my blinds because there's so much hope in just staying and, and doing the work and believing that that some greater source wants you here and that there was a reason for all of this. And there certainly was um, a reason for me to be here. And, uh, and I'm happy to say that, you know, I went on medication, I was diagnosed, I went to the psychiatrist, they gave me 20 milligrams of Prozac, I was on that for six months, and I haven't taken anything since. Now, that's my story. That's not a lot of other people's story. And I think that medication plays a fantastic role. It did for me even if it was what many people have said to me through the years, maybe it was just placebo. And you know what? I think as soon as that psychiatrist said, Sharon, I'm going to give you a pill. I did feel better hundred percent because there was some type of hope in the form of a pill that I wasn't going to want to die every day. So uh, it was very uh, important to get the help, to get the professional help outside of my 12 step recovery, because um there's a, a huge stigma even in recovery about mental health. There's a stigma everywhere yep. about everything. And thank goodness we are, you know, um, a part of normalizing the conversation by just talking about it freely and openly and knowing that we're not alone. And there's many people like us out there. And, um, and then the journey began. The journey began when the depression lifted. The journey began when I didn't want to die every day. 
is that first year of my recovery, I really feel like it was a complete blur. And then there was just a ton of work that had to be done on myself, which I'm still doing to this day. Yeah, I can relate to uh, that deep, dark place. So in 2013, I, I mean, I struggle, I've struggled with depression since I was very young, very young. Uh, and it was overlooked. My family has told me since my bipolar diagnosis that they just thought that was just Megan. I was just, that's just who I was. And, and it is part of me, right? It's not, it doesn't go away for with bipolar disorder. It's not, it, I could take all the pills in the world. And unless I want to be a zombie, it's never going to like fully resolve itself. But yeah, I struggled for so long. And in 2013, I, I mean, I'd had suicidal ideation before, but I never acted on it. And then mm. 2013 was my rock bottom moment. And mm. my spouse was like, you need to get help. Like, you can't, you can't live like this. Like you need to get help. He's like, if you still feel like this in a year and you want to, you want to just end it all, I won't stand in your way. Now he was lying, obviously, but (laughs) (laughs) it got, it got me into therapy for the first time. And I still struggled for six years. Like therapy helped a lot, but I still struggled because I didn't know I had bipolar disorder. So, and, and and it was so overlooked because people just focused on the depression portion of things mm. and didn't see that too. And so finally, when I got that diagnosis and they started me on medication, I was like, hallelujah. And it's been like almost three years now of just uh, struggling to get to the right dosage and also work on myself and, and, and learn how to deal with these, like, you know, these symptoms that I have. So I can, I can totally relate to that you know, rock bottom moment where you're just like, I need help. Something's got to change. This is too much. And I can't keep doing this. Yeah. Well, he asked me, you know, a poignant question and he asked me if I was having suicidal thoughts and through all of my rehabs and therapists and nobody asked me that question. And I felt safe enough to tell him yes. And it wasn't until that time that I was able then to get the help that I needed, but you, you need the right person to ask the right questions. And we need, we certainly need more people being brave and courageous enough to ask those questions and to have those conversations where somebody can feel safe and discuss how they're thinking and how they're feeling. So a plan of action can be put into place to help them recover. And, and the plan is never, you know, a straight run. There's usually a lot that goes with it. It's never just about taking medication. It's never just about going to 12 step recovery meetings. There's, there's actually a lot of work, a lot of work and it's ongoing. And still to this day, I mean, I started my day with a three mile walk through a park because I, if I don't start my day like that, who knows what it will look like. I won't be able to handle all the stresses that come our way, not just in a pandemic, but just in regular life, you know, running businesses and, and, and doing all the things uh, it's important that we have the right support system around us. Yes. And if if people don't understand if they've never had mental health struggles, it's a delicate balance. Like if I don't get enough sleep, if I'm eating like crap, if, I'm surrounding myself with toxic, negative people. Like there's so many things that go into, like, if I don't maintain this like delicate balance, it it doesn't. And then, then I end up like in a deep depression. And then now we're trying to figure out how we can manage that. And 
it's just not one fun. (laughs) And it's hard to um, balance all, like you said, all the responsibilities you have in your life when you're Mm -hmm. in that place. Like, I mean, I have four kids, I'm in grad school, I have a spouse and I, I, all these different various responsibilities that if I don't maintain that, like you were talking Mm -hmm. about, like it all just spinning plates, they all just fall. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I share a lot about how, um, my first five years in recovery, I did not do any of the work that is, uh, suggested through the program. You know, I would go to therapy, I would go to meetings, I would, you know, do some of the suggestions, but never all of them. And I wasn't, um, I was getting better of course, cause I wasn't drinking and drugging anymore. And I no longer wanted to die, but I certainly wasn't thriving. And I had somebody who loved me enough to tell me that I might want to consider coming to one of these uh, big book studies, they call them in uh, 12 step recovery. And I, I started going to them and started doing a lot of the work of changing myself and being accountable and no longer blaming and making amends and um, continuing to take personal inventory and when I'm wrong, promptly admitting it and, you know, that, and helping others. But I'll tell you, it's a long process. You know, when I was 10 years, I, I read about this in the book too. I was 10 years sober. I had, you know, been through some, not nothing like the relationships I was in when I was drinking and drugging, but certainly still attracting some toxic people in my life. And my last uh, boyfriend had a girlfriend. And, uh, and he was in recovery and this is what I was attracting, but all through the, the years of getting better, I was very comfortable blaming everything on everybody else. There was no way I was going to look at myself and there was no way I was going to, you know, uh, get to a place where I said, why am I attracting these people? Like, what is it about me that I'm doing wrong? So when I was 10 years sober, I moved to Tampa Bay, Florida and, uh, by myself, I uh, had no job. I had, I had some savings, um, but I had always wanted to live here. I would vacationed here um, with my parents for many years. And, and now they live here too. They followed me. It's usually the opposite. <laughs> um, and I really just knew that I, if I was going to, if I was really going to live a life that like I was granted the second, third, fourth chance like I wasn't going to just stop at being okay and, or, or being cheated on. I needed to start over. I needed to start fresh. And, you know, I, I spent two years while I was here in Tampa Bay, just working on myself. I wasn't dating anyone. I was uh, running a, a medical practice. I had come from being director of operations for New York medical. It was, you know, I, you start thriving uh, just because we might be alcoholics or addicts or suffer from mental health issues, typically some of the smartest, hardest workers you'll ever meet. And, um, and I had a, you know, a quest to live my best life. And, and thank goodness I, I made that move and I stayed here. And um, I went through the hard times of being alone and, and not blaming this person and taking responsibility for why I was attracting and then doing the work to make the changes because it really isn't about anybody else at the end of the day. It's really about us and what we do to, to make those changes. And, and now, you know, two years later living here, I, I met my husband and we've been together for 14 years and I have a beautiful stepson and, you know, businesses and all of that great stuff, but that came with a lot of pain. And I say that Megan today, because 
it takes a long time mm. to get right. If this is not, you know, one year, two years, it's taken a long time. I waited until I was 25 years sober to write a book because I knew that along the way I was in bad relationships. I would pick bad jobs. I, you know, uh, was lying or whatever it was. It took a long time to, uh, to, to make that decision, to write the book and to let other people know that, um, that there's hope that there's really hope, but you really have to take care of yourself before you even think about trying to take care of somebody else or offering somebody else advice or, um, even opinions, because, um, I had to make a ton of mistakes before I got to where I am today. And that's still on a path. And who knew, you know, a pandemic was going to hit right 2019 when I released the book, like what was to come after that. And now the, to be in a world that has a mental health epidemic yeah, along with yeah. the pandemic, um, is certainly uh, a struggle for all of us. And I, I was just on with a client that's a psychiatrist and, um, and they can't even accept new patients because mm -hmm. they're so busy. So we're really in kind of a flux right now where we need people like you or myself or resources like a book or a podcast to kind of fill in the gaps before somebody can get maybe even the professional help that they need. And, and telling people about free resources is just, you know, incredibly helpful. It was very helpful to me. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I love that you pointed out that like, you can struggle with addiction or mental health problems or both. It doesn't fit the stereotype, right? So right. I said earlier that mental health stigma is stigma in general, but mental health stigma specifically is that's my jam. That's what I really want to study as a researcher. Yeah. I geek out about it. But one of the things that contributes to stigma is stereotypes. Sure. So you have a stereotype in your head of not, maybe not you because you've been through addiction and you've struggled with mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe not me because I've interviewed so many people who have had these struggles and it's not one size fits all, but like most, the general public has a stereotype of the person who's been through addiction, yeah. the person who has mental health struggles, like what that means. Uh, and they don't see that some of the most brilliant people struggle okay. with these things or have struggled with these things. And I also love that you talked about responsibility because it's the hardest part, right? Like yeah. uh, when I got my bipolar diagnosis and I really started, well, in therapy, I really started taking responsibility. But when I got that diagnosis, it was like a wake up call. Like you, you need to say sorry for all the things you did. Like, you know, the tens of thousands of dollars that I racked up in impulse spending, um, you know, how short and irritable I was with my children, like all of these things that bipolar contributed to, but I have to take responsibility. And even on those days, like a couple of days ago, I was really short and irritable with my daughter and I had to apologize. I had right. to say, I'm so sorry. Like, this is what's going on with me. And you didn't deserve for me to be short with you, but taking that responsibility instead of blaming other people or other things. So hard. So, so hard. hard. So hard. I have this wonderful man, Jimmy Marino, who has since passed away, but he was such a, a godsend to me when I moved to Florida and we used to talk about making amends. And he, he taught me something so valuable. He said, you know, we've said, sorry, so many times. So today when I make amends to anybody, you know, I always 
do it eyeball to eyeball, like he recommends or zoom to zoom or FaceTime to FaceTime. However, we have to do it in a pandemic and, and say, I regret what I did and what can I do to make it up to you? Mm -hmm. And that changed everything for me because I don't think that just saying we're sorry is enough. You know, I think that we really have the hardest part about, um, recovery of any kind in my is communication. The hardest part of life is just communicating. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, there's so many people that, that don't understand addiction. And as you mentioned, and there's all these stereotypes, I remember when I was releasing my book now for a living, I work with doctors, you know, some of the highest level professionals out there. None of them knew I was a drug addict and alcoholic and a crackhead. And that's why I specifically listed one of my chapters. I smoked crack because I really want to get, I really want you to understand that like whatever you see today was not how it started. And I remember um, being asked quite a lot uh, from colleagues and, and family and loved ones. Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to let people know? Because, you know, what if you don't get hired anymore? Mm. And, um, you know, for me, there was no problem answering that question. It was like, well, I don't give a crap if they don't hire me because of what my life used to be. If anything, everybody should be jumping for joy that I was able to pull myself out of a hole of the depths of, of darkness for anybody that has shown up being diagnosed with bipolar, having a mental health issue, have being an addict. The fact that somebody can live more than one life and still just take a walk for three miles in a park, like somebody give me a medal. <laughs> Right. But I, I had to take that chance. And, um, to this day, it's, uh, it's only brought better conversations and opportunities to talk about mental health in the workplace and, and how the highest level professionals still suffer, do suffer. And the best part about communication and what you're doing and having these conversations is the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And it offers the opportunity for somebody else to know that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. And to see that there's hope because there is literally no way when I was in that darkness that I ever thought those blinds would be open. So I know how that feels. So today, if I see a homeless person, if I see somebody addicted, I see me. Mm-hmm. So I don't judge. And to me, that is the greatest gift in the world is to never, ever forget where you came from because it will carry me in gratitude forever. And I wish I could give that gift to everybody. You know, you, if, when you see homeless, when you see, uh, people that are are committing crimes and being put in prison for years and years, majority of those people have been traumatized or grew up in a, a horrible home or been sexually abused. And, you know, it's hard when the here, you know what, Megan, the best part about this pandemic has been we've had global adversity. Yeah. It's a, it's a global trauma going on. Yes. Yes. So everybody has had to figure out how to climb out of whatever it is, whether it was, they lost somebody they loved or they were sick or they lost their job or they had a pivot in their business. Everybody at the same time, we've just had to do it without a pandemic. Right. And, and it's almost a, a benefit. I have felt like since day one that I, I already know how it feels to climb out of a hole. Mm-hmm. This hole is just a little different, you know? And, um, 
and and you have to implement the work in order to to sustain yourself and and helping others and and sharing these types of stories with others is I know it's what saved me. I know why recovery works. I know why the 12 step rooms work because I hear me and everybody. And that's yeah. what we need most in the world is to share our stories. Absolutely. Uh, there's three approaches to reducing stigma. The most effective ones are education and contact and contact does not actually have to be face-to-face. It can be recorded. It can be audio. It can be uh, somebody's story written down right in your book. And that helps to shift perspectives. And the more and more you come in contact with people that don't fit the stereotype in your head, the more Mm -hmm. you start to shift your perspective a little bit. And I, like you, I've had people in my life are like, do you really want to talk about that on your podcast? You really want to share that? You want to go into a PhD program? Do you really want people to know that? I applied for my master's program. They asked just short little saying about me and, and, you know, why I'm interested in this program about, and I shared, like shared my diagnosis. I shared these things and, you know, people are reading it and they're like, are you sure? You sure you want to tell them that? What if it stops you from getting accepted? I'm like, then I do like, how, how am I going to be authentically myself? If I hide that, I have no problem. I talk about it in classes, whatever. And sometimes I get the people that take a step back not professors, but like classmates, they treat me a little differently once they know Mm -hmm. I don't care because Mm -hmm. now I'm shifting their perspective a little bit. Now you see, oh, so somebody with bipolar disorder, oh, they could function. They could do things. They're not, Mm -hmm. you know, people think like people with bipolar disorder one minute, we're like really sad. And one minute we're like, ah, and that's not how it works. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so, you know, I break that, that, that stereotype. And, yeah. and hopefully it's just perspective. And, you know, like you said, these stories are so powerful. So powerful. They're so powerful. And the professionals that have the courage like you to admit that the lived experience is what is going to attract your clientele. You know, I mean, the therapist that I see today, I, I want to make therapy cool again. So um, <laughs> I started going to therapy and telling everybody about it. I wasn't in, um, I wasn't in pain. I wasn't but I, I was in a pandemic and I thought, well, this couldn't only benefit me. Why don't I go to therapy? But I made sure that I found somebody that was sober mm-hmm. because I wanted to be with somebody that could actually relate to what I was going through or what I had been through. And, and, um, I could never, I could never go to anybody that didn't understand. I find it more difficult. And I know this is the majority, especially in, in 12 step recovery, because so many people struggle with depression and bipolar and anxiety and OCD, you name it, they got it, that they want a professional that is willing to share that story. I think that's, I think the biggest mistake is that people don't do that. The professionals don't say, you know what, I'm sober or I'm whatever it is, you know, I'm bipolar. I think that it is a huge, you could just attract your own tribe from that. Yeah. Because people feel safe. I know people feel safe with me. I know when I'm standing in front of the company and I am sharing my story of smoking crack with Franklin Templeton, one of the biggest you know, financial companies in the world, that at the end of my talk, that all of those employees are going to come up to me and share their deepest, darkest secrets because mm-hmm. they feel safe. It's, and that's really all that matters, right? Is to help somebody else feel safe and feel listened to and heard and seen. Absolutely. Yes. 
Absolutely. My spouse. So the other day I have low self-esteem and the, <laughs> you and everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I know. On Wednesday, went back to, to school. I was cleared to go back to school it was our first day. And so many people were so excited to see me. And I come home and I say to my spouse, like, why are people so excited to see me? Like, why is, is there something about me? Like what's going on? He goes, he's like giggling to himself. Cause like, he's just like, how do you not see this? He was like, you're so authentically you, you're so open. People feel comfortable being around you because they can tell you anything and, yes. and they don't have to worry about being judged about it. You know, I know the deepest, darkest secrets about some of my classmates, because when I started sharing and talking and being so open, they just came to me. Now I'm not bragging on myself, but I'm like, he helped me see like, that's, that's a positive. That's a good thing. Yeah. 100%. And you know, one of the reasons that catapulted me to write the book was I've had the great blessing of working with a lot of physicians and a lot of CEOs of banks. And I, I have, I, I can't even believe it, you know, cause I think about the girl that blacked out and went to Michigan, right? right? That's who I am. And that what I get to do today is so incredible, but because I was vulnerable with them and I would reveal myself and share that they would start telling me their stories. And I, I knew, I mean, I knew that it wasn't just for the person that was, you know, born in poverty or whatever it is. We could list a million different uh, scenarios and social economic, you know, statuses. People are people and everybody goes through something. Mm -hmm. And I really think that more, the more people that tell their stories, I mean, we could think about what happened with the Olympics and how, you know, people came out and they started talking about the mental health and the struggles thank God for celebrities like that, because they have such a huge platform yep. and it gives people when, once you see you're like, Oh, well, a celebrity, you know, is like that. Or, or look at all of the, the musicians that have died by suicide through the years as awful and as sad as has horrific as it is, it has given us an opportunity to have the conversation and to make people feel less alone. So, no, yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And it helps normalize things when in, people are using their platforms to share, right? You're, yeah. you're showing by sharing your story so openly, like, yeah, you can be super successful and have had mental health and addiction struggles. Like it is possible. It is not the end of the, like you didn't, that didn't end your life. Like it literally didn't end your life, right. but also it didn't, that doesn't define who you are. It's a part of who you are, but it doesn't define you. And you get to go on, you get to live your life. You get to do great things because you didn't allow that to stop you. And, and you didn't allow it to just be the only thing that you are. But you know what, Megan, it's actually the best part of me. It is the best part of me that that happened, that I wanted to die. I, I mean, I wouldn't have the relationship with my parents that I have today. I wouldn't have the relationship with my husband that I have today. I wouldn't have any of it if I did not go through it. And I do believe I, I love um, the book Lost Connections. I highly recommend that to anybody that is struggling with depression um, by Johan Hari. And then, of course, I was introduced to Dr. Gabor Mate through listening to podcasts who talks a lot about trauma and how I never knew, I never knew, even before I wrote this book, I did not know that my depression was so linked to my trauma. Mm. And it was yep. so eye-opening. I was 25 years sober and I was listening to Dr. Gabor Mate, like, tell me that the trauma 
is the reason I drank, is the reason I drugged, is the reason I was depressed, it was the reason I got into bad relationships, it was the reason I had low self-esteem, it was the so even since releasing that book, I've learned so much more, you know, because we're constantly, hopefully, continuing to evolve and gain more knowledge from others. And now, you know, I just, I see things so differently. I, I think I would have been more judgmental a few years ago about how people decided to get sober or if they took medication or if they didn't take medication today, there are no judgments and no opinions here. Um, there's just educating somebody, like you mentioned, just educating them about your own story. I can't tell you how to live your life, but I can share what happened to me. And it's been a long process, long Well, Sharon, as we wrap up the podcast today, I always ask somebody, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? You are not alone. You are not alone. And sharing your vulnerability is the greatest gift to the world. Yes. That's the whole point of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's That's it. We got to Brene Brown everything. Yeah. If if only. Right. (laughs) Right. Turn that, turn her name into a verb. We're right. Renee Browning right now. <laughs> I love her so much. I do. Me I too. adore that lady. Uh, so Sharon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for all you're doing. And I'm so glad that a woman that has suffered with bipolar will be in the professional medical world, helping other people. We need you and so many more like you. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.